Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Well, good morning. Good. We're awake today. Last week was a little, a little bit of fatigue going on. Well, I want to welcome you again here to Grace Point Church. Uh, for, if any of you don't know me, I'm Pastor James, pastor here. Uh, excited to worship with you. Excited to be here to open the Lord's word, to praise and honor and glorify him, especially as we are in this Advent season. Uh, as we've said before, Advent is a season of anticipation. Uh, Many people think about the anticipation of Christ's first coming that we celebrate on Christmas, his birth and, and, and him coming to earth so he could do all those amazing things that we just sang about. But Advent isn't just about his first coming and anticipating that. It's also about anticipating his second coming because one day he will come back and we will be made perfect with the Lord. We will walk again with God in the garden. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about heaven and hell and and the beauty of what it means to stand before the Lord in heaven and the detriment of missing out on that and an eternity in hell. It's such an encouragement for us to be able to open the word during Advent and remember not just that Jesus came and did those things, but that one day we will walk again with him in the garden. As Mark already very well explained here at Grace Point Church, our identity is one of a covenant family of hope. That's what we're growing towards. That's what we want to become. That's what we hope that you see as you look around. Covenant, we are based on God's promises and God's word. Family, we're a community, but we're more than just, you know, the the people who meet at a restaurant or who know each other from certain different places. We really do come together. Like a family, like Mark said, we are here in good times and in bad times. We're here to love and encourage and lift up, but we're also here to to come alongside in pain and suffering. We're also here to pray for one another and to lift each other up and encourage and challenge one another. And we can't forget the hope. There are so many churches as we look around that, that meet and do all the motions of church, but they forget about the gospel. They forget about the hope that we have in Jesus. In the scriptures, the gospel is always talked about as hope, as anticipating what we have coming. And so our hope is that we here at Grace Point are growing in our love of the word, growing in our love of each other, and growing in our love of the gospel. We are in the middle of our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. The series is called Jesus is Better. I don't think anybody doubts that. But today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. You can find this on page 1006 in the Blue Pew Bibles or page 1193 in the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, We always give those page numbers because we want you to turn to those uh, texts with us. Uh, and, and my personal encouragement to you is to have your Bible open. I know that it's a really easy for us to open our, our phones and things like that, but they've done studies, and, and, and reading from the Word, whether 
whatever Bible it is, uh, actually helps us to remember those things better. So that's why we encourage you with those page numbers. That's why we have pew Bibles. And if you don't see one, we've got a whole bunch back there by Brendan uh, next to the, the pillars back there. So we'd encourage you to go get those. Uh, now that you've had a chance to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22, which we'll be covering today, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm actually going to start back in verse 13, which we covered last week, but it segues into this week's section. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Father, we praise you for this text, and we pray that as we study it, you would help us not only to understand it in our minds, uh, but to hide the truths of the beauty of the gospel in our hearts, and to work out with our hands the ways that you show us to trust you in this text. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We keep talking about covenants. Now, you should hear that every week as we talk about covenant family of hope, but as we've dived into Hebrews, this topic of covenants just keeping, keeps coming up again and again and again. And so you're probably asking the question, why are they so important? Commentator Dennis Johnson has already said that God initiates covenants because he delights to live among his subjects. If you remember, as we were talking about the covenants and how Jesus is the perfect mediator of the order of Melchizedek, we said that these covenants help us to live with the Lord. But there is so much more than just being able to live with God. Covenants are the key way that God relates to us. This means that as we read Scripture, we have to do it through the lens of God's covenants with us. It's almost as if we have to put on glasses and remember that everything that we read has to be led, read through the lens of the promises that God has already made to us and is fulfilling in us. He makes covenants to promise a future. We saw that with Adam in Genesis 3.15, that, that first mention of the gospel. We saw it with Noah, that no more would the world be flood, we, flooded. We saw it with Abraham, that he would do these things for his people. 
We saw it with David that one day one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. And we saw it in Jeremiah as he looked forward to the new covenant and promised better things. But they're not just a promise of a better future. They're also a way to deal with the problems in our relationship with God. We've said over and over again that that sin breaks our relationship with God. And that something has to come along to help fix that. And we've said again and again, we can't do that on our own. We can't repair that relationship because everything we do is tainted with sin. And so we're talking about covenants because they're important in Scripture and they're important particularly in Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews is one of the key places that we see this in the New Testament. The word that's translated as covenants appears 33 times in the whole New Testament. 17 of those times are in Hebrews, with most of them being in chapters 8 and 9. So Hebrews has the most mention of covenants out of all of the books of the New Testament. The second most mentions of covenants appears in Galatians, and that's three. Hebrews is 17 as the most, Galatians is three. And so covenants are a key aspect of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews wants his audience to remember not only the covenants that God has made, but the covenant that Jesus has made and what that brings to us. And so what we've been doing in these last chapters is we've been looking particularly at that Sinai covenant because that's the one that helps us to repair our relationship. That's the one that is often referred to as the law or the first covenant. And we've seen already that the Sinai Covenant was important in the Old Testament because the Sinai Covenant restored God's people to a harmonious relationship with God after they had sinned and broken that relationship. It brought us closer to God. It was a relationship-repairing thing for us. This covenant accomplished this through worship at the tabernacle which included regular sacrifices. We've already said that if we, if we had been around as the tabernacle wandered around or around as the temple was there, we probably would have thought, oh my gosh, I have to sacrifice again? And it would have been a twofold thing. Number one, it would have been like, yeah, I do. Look how sinful I am. But also it would have been like, ah, I wish there was something better. That old, that old covenant was a preview because Jesus is better. And Jesus is going to make that old covenant complete. And so today as we dive into the text, we're going to see how Jesus' blood secures. We're going to see what the animal blood signified, and we're going to see the mosaic example that we've already looked like. So let's start in verse 15 and see what it is that Jesus' blood secures. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, I actually considered reversing the order of this sermon because verse 15 is kind of the culmination of what we're going to talk about and then the rest of the text kind of builds that back up and so it's it almost feels like we're starting high and then and lowering down but I thought no I like I like to do things in order and they were written in this order for a reason so let's start with verse 15. Verse 15 says uh, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So this first covenant, this Mosaic covenant, constantly had blood shed, especially on the Day of Atonement. 
There's your weekly reminder. You should go check out Leviticus because it's amazing. And Leviticus 16 is this day of atonement where the Lord helps the people to understand how the sins have to be dealt with. And the Lord gives provision in case anybody forgot to deal with their sins. He gives provision in this day of atonement. And so this animal blood that was being shed was only a substitutionary death. It sustained the covenant between God and the sinner. But notice that the blood could only show and sustain the covenant. It could not secure our redemption. We see again and again throughout the New Testament that the blood shed by those animals was not enough. It was looking forward to a better solution that would bring us redemption. Only Jesus' death as a single superior sacrifice. I love how the ESV Study Bible puts this. Only Jesus' death as a single superior sacrifice brings forgiveness of sin, eternal salvation, purified consciences, and direct access to God. So that Old Testament, that moral law, that Mosaic covenant kept pointing forward to something better. And that better thing was Jesus' death. Only through Jesus' death do we really get forgiveness of sin. Only through Jesus' death do we really get eternal salvation. Only through Jesus' death are our consciences purified. We talked about that last week. And only through Jesus' death do we have direct access to God. Because you remember the priests mediated on our behalf, but when Jesus died, that curtain tore in two, and now we have direct access to God. Jesus' death is so much better than everything that has come before it. Now, we've already seen in Hebrews, Jesus described as both the guarantor and the mediator of that new covenant. If you turn back a page, you look at uh, chapter 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Fast forward a little bit into chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he makes is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. So Jesus is the guarantor and the mediator, bringing not only the new covenant, but the better covenant. Praise the Lord that it is a better covenant covenant. Praise the Lord that we don't have those sacrifices anymore. Under the Mosaic law, faithfulness led to blessing, and a lack of faithfulness led to curses. This can be a really confusing thing for people because we look at it in terms of our individual acts and motions and the things that we do and, and the pros and the cons of every action we take. But if you look at Deuteronomy 28, where Moses is, is giving one of his last speeches to his people, he reminds them of the covenant blessings and curses. And under that Mosaic covenant, if they were faithful, they would be blessed. But if they were faithless, they would be cursed. And the blood that was shed in the enacting of this covenant shows the gravity and the weightiness of the covenant. This covenant demanded death so that we could escape the curse of sin. In bringing the Mosaic covenant, God gives his people an out 
He gives his people a way to deal with their sin. And he says, if you keep doing these things, if you're faithful to what I've called you to be faithful to, you'll be blessed. But we all know how that went, right? We all have seen the Old Testament, the New Testament, in our own personal lives. Israel continued to fail. And as they continued to fail, those curses came about. We see famine, we see violence, we see exile, we see disease, we see death come upon Israel because of their failure in these covenants. Israel's final and our final and complete redemption can only be found in Jesus. Go back to verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We, we talked last week about how verses 13 and 14 are these arguments from the lesser to the greater. Well, you remember, these things did this, and that was good. But Jesus does this, and that is better. That is greater. That is more incredible. The Mosaic Covenant was pointing to something better. And there's a lot of beauty and a lot of depth in this verse, in verse 15. Not only do we see the, the covenant and the fulfillment that we have uh, with Christ, but we see so much more. Look back with me again at verse 15. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let's break this verse down. We start with Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant, which is what we've kind of been building on for weeks and weeks and weeks. But then look at how he, what he says next. He is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called. This is a glorious and beautiful promise. This is the concept of what theologians call election. That is, God elects his people. Romans 8, chapter 30, or chapter 8, verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Second Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. How incredible is it that God has chosen us? That it's not up to us. I think all of us would admit that in some areas of our lives, we're not dependent. Maybe it's that we can't drive a semi-truck. Nope, you don't want me to be doing that. Maybe it's that we can't install things. No, you don't want me to do anything electrical. We won't have power in the house for weeks. Whatever the case may be, we can't be dependent in everything. And God has called us as sinners in our worst state when we didn't want him and brought us to himself. How incredible is this promise that God has given? And the author of Hebrews just drops this into verse 15, reminding us that God has called us. This wasn't of our own volition, but he has called us. Then he goes on. 
He said, he is called, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So when he calls us, we become his adopted sons and daughters. Now, as children, we inherit from our parents. Our inheritance is eternal salvation. Now, praise the Lord. The Lord doesn't have to die for us to receive that. Jesus died for us to receive that. As those who are called, those who are chosen, those who are brought out by God, we have an eternal inheritance. And praise the Lord that it's not dependent on us. And that eternal inheritance is salvation. But he doesn't stop there. Since a death has occurred, that redeems us from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is better because Jesus redeems. Christ's death is a payment for the penalty for sin once and for all. And so in this short little verse, this verse 15, we get the culmination of lots of beautiful truths of the Lord. We are called, we are elected to be his. We are given eternal salvation, the greatest gift that can ever be given. And we are redeemed by Jesus. None of this is because of how good we are. None of this is because we were good enough or we do enough. All of this God gives us as a gift. That's why Advent is so glorious. Because we are looking forward to the day when we fully receive this gift in Christ's second coming. And we walk with him in the garden once again. I, I read this verse and I break down these concepts and I just say, wow! God's people needed to be redeemed from their sin. We all know we sin. If you don't think you sin, you're wrong. And I'd love to talk to you about it. But we all sin. And we all need help. We all hurt people. We all do things that are wrong. And we need to have that dealt with. And we can't deal with it ourselves. So in the Old Covenant, God gives them animals and blood to be shed. And that pointed to the blood of Jesus. The blood that wouldn't just cover our sin, but would call us, give us that eternal inheritance, redeem us. Jesus is better. Jesus is the answer. This is so important in this book because you remember the context of this book. Because context is? Now we haven't done that in a while. I'm glad you're awake. The context of this book is that the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who are being persecuted and hurt and hunted down. And they're at this place where they're pulling their hair out and ready to give up. They're ready to go back to the Mosaic Covenant because then at least they knew, these are the things I do. I don't have to be persecuted anymore because people can accept that. But the author of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is better. Jesus is worth the persecution that you're receiving. Only Jesus' death was able to pay for our sins and secure for us an inheritance from God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sins separate us from God, and our sins deserve judgment, and our sins lead to our death. On our own, we have no hope. But God gives us the free gift of Jesus. 
who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, rose again from the grave, defeating death, and is seated at God's right hand right now, praying for us. That free gift of God is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 15 is glorious. Verse 15 is encouraging. Verse 15 is one of these verses that reminds us so much of what God has done for us called us, given us in a promised eternal inheritance, redeemed us in ways that we couldn't ourselves. And so in this section, the author starts by reminding us that Jesus' blood secures all those things for us. And he goes on in 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 to go back to the Old Covenant, because remember, this is what those people wanted to go to, and show them why Jesus' blood is better. So in 16 and 17, he talks about what it is that the animal blood signified. Animal blood was shed for the Mosaic Covenant, and it represented the lethal consequence and costliness of sin. Now, I'm not trying to be pedantic or funny, but it's not as though we bring in animals to take our sin and they get a spanking. Our sin Our sin is costly. Our sin is lethal. And so the sacrifice of these animals reminded the people every single time it happened, that blood flowing out, that blood sprinkled on them, reminded them that our sin is bad. It is lethal. And so every time animal blood was shed, it showed them the lethal consequence and the costliness of sin. It wasn't like they could just pay a few bucks and it was fine. It wasn't like they could do an indulgence and it was fine. No, blood had to be shed. When covenants were made, there was often death involved in the ancient Near East. We go back to Genesis 15, verses 8 through 21. This is the text. We talked about it uh, early in Hebrews about where when God is making the covenant with Abraham, he cuts a whole bunch of animals in half, separates them, and the blood flows down in between them. And what would happen when a king and a vassal would be, they call it cutting a covenant because they're cutting the animals, the blood, they would both walk through that blood. And the, the, the idea here is that as they walk through that blood, they're saying, I promise to uphold my part of the covenant, and if I don't, may I be like these animals, sacrificing myself if I don't keep my word. When covenants were made in the ancient Near East, there was often the death of animals to invoke covenant curses on that covenant if it was broken. So when we get to 16 and 17, uh, the word there used is will. We, we kind of read that and we get this idea of will as though we receive something. But that word can also be translated as covenant. And so we see that verse 17 shows us that a covenant that is not ratified until a covenant maker has taken a self-maledictory oath. Whoa, what, what, what? That means that they have committed themselves to death if they break the covenant. That's what verse 17 is trying to tell us. That a covenant is not ratified until one promises that they will die if they break this covenant. It shows that the institution of the new covenant, 16 and 17, pointing back to Jesus in verse 15, that new covenant came only at Christ's death. 
So it's a little confusing. Take a step back. 16 and 17 are trying to show us that Jesus' life led up to his death, and at his death, then the covenant comes active. That new covenant, that promised covenant from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Not only does Jesus' death forgive our sins, not only does Jesus' death redeem us and secure a place for us as God's children, but it also begins the promised new covenant because the necessary sacrifice has been made so that that new covenant can become active. That's what verses 16 and 17 are showing us is that that animal blood sacrifice showed the weightiness of that, but it wasn't enough. And so once Jesus died, the new covenant becomes active. And then he dives even deeper, the author does, into the shedding of blood by giving the mosaic example in 18 through 22. Building on the concept from 16 and 17, 18 through 22 show how the mosaic covenant also began with shed blood. So lest we think, what? This is new. This is, this is not normal that, that blood would be shed to enact a covenant. The author goes, wait, wait, wait. Remember this covenant that you want to go back to, this Mosaic covenant, this Old Testament covenant, this first covenant, as it's sometimes called, also began with shed blood. We read that when Moses read out the commands, he sprinkled them with blood as well as the law itself, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. You see that in verse 20. And so after he's read it out, after he's given them the law, after he's given them the covenant that God has given them, he sprinkles blood on them and on the law. Not only that, but we see in verse 18 that he also uh, uh, sprinkles water uh, on scarlet wool and hyssop, um, both on the people as well. Now, this scarlet wool and hyssop uh, goes back to this idea that actually they probably were extra dirty, you know, because that, that wool and hyssop, uh, when we go back to the Old Testament, is a cleansing ritual. And so the people needed this covenant. And it's interesting, too, because this, this makes a comparison with the covenant with Abram. Because if you step back and you look back at Genesis 15, when those animals are cut uh, to, to cut the covenant with Abraham, you remember Abraham was actually asleep. So he cuts the animals, he keeps the birds away, and then God puts him into a sleep. And the only one that goes through the blood is the Lord. He goes through the blood as a lantern representing the light of the Lord going through and saying, I'm taking this all on myself. In Genesis 15, God walked through the blood alone and bore the obligation so that he could secure Abraham's blessings. And let's be honest, praise the Lord. When we see Abraham go into Egypt, thank goodness it wasn't dependent upon him because he keeps messing up, as does every biblical figure except Jesus. And so in Genesis 15, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, God is the only one that goes through. But the Mosaic covenant, the blood is sprinkled on the people and the things representing God. It's sprinkled on the people and the law. And so now together, these people have been brought into the covenant. Back in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, we read this section. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We chuckle because we know that that didn't last very long. 
But at the same time, when we chuckle, we should be recognizing it doesn't last very long for us either. We're all going to sin this afternoon in some way, shape, or form. Thank the Lord for Jesus' blood. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So blood is sprinkled both on the law, which represents God, and on the people. They are now a part of this in the way that Abraham was not in the covenant that was made with him. At Sinai, God's people bound themselves. They promised to keep the Lord's covenant or face violent death under his curse. That's what the blood represented. Just like in Genesis 15, if, they, if Abraham had gone through there, and then you know, that, that would be saying, if I break this, this is what will happen to me. And so at Sinai, God's people promised all that the Lord has said we will do. And again, it's interesting because not only do we see this blood shed, but we see actually cleansing rituals with the hyssop. Because the author's trying to make the point of the pervasiveness of the people's sinfulness and defilement. Now, it's interesting to me, as we read particularly verse 20, how Jesus co-ops verse 20 when he's uh, doing the Lord's Supper. Verse 20 says, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. We fast uh, uh, rewind back to Matthew 26. Uh, verse 28, as Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, you remember, context is king. The people who would be listening to Jesus would have been like, Whoa, 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 those are the same words. Those are the same words that we hear given. This is my blood shed for you. It's just a slight change of this is the blood given for you. Jesus is showing them. They don't realize it, we know, until later, but Jesus is showing them that thing that they've been looking forward to, that, that promised covenant that was supposed to be coming, Jesus is doing that right then. So, fast forward, Moses sprinkles the tabernacle and the furniture as well which we may find interesting. We talked about the tabernacle and how it was set up and how the furniture inside all represented the glory of the Lord and coming back to the Lord. And even the orientation of the temple showed them, you know, coming back to the garden, back to the place where they were able to walk with God. But all those things were made by the hands of men. Hands that were dirty. And so the blood on them was a ceremonial purification. And this was merely a shadow of what was to come. We keep saying this, and it's important that we recognize this. These were just pictures in the Old Testament of the ultimate redemption and promise that comes in the New Testament. The tabernacle and temple, as beautiful as they were, were but shadows of the tabernacle that we see in heaven. The blood shed was but a shadow of Christ's glorious blood shed for our sins. 
And we've said over and over again, in the Mosaic Law, the sacrifices were continuously necessary because the people kept sinning. And the animal sacrifice was imperfect. Blood had to keep being shed until one came along and shed that blood once for all. That's why this language in verse 15 is so important. A death, singular, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus was the one death that dealt with all their sins. And all those animal sacrifices were just pointing forward to what Jesus would do. They were a shadow of Christ's sacrifice. It's interesting, too, that we see that forgiveness cannot occur without the shedding of blood. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is important as well because it reminds us that the things that we do, our good works, the actions that we take, they don't deal with our sin. As good as we are, as many prayers as we do, as much time as we commit, that's not what deals with our sin. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most scary verses in all of Scripture is the people who go up and they say, I cast out demons in your name, I prophesied in your name, and what does the Lord say? Depart from me. I never knew you. That's terrifying. It's true, though, because the only thing that deals with our sins is Jesus' blood. We look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ." like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our good words, our good deeds, our good prayers, our good actions, everything that we do is not enough. Only bloodshed can deal with our sin. That's a pretty heavy section of text. And honestly, many people look at texts like this today and they just skip over them. Either they've bought into the lie that the Old Testament doesn't matter because now we have Jesus. Sometimes people use verses like this to reinforce that. See, look, Jesus is better. We don't need that other stuff. Or they just don't think that the Old Testament matters at all. But this text is reminding us of two key things. Number one, it's reminding us of the gravity of of the relationship with God and the cost of sin. And number two, it's reminding us of the joy that we have in Jesus. Let's look at these. Number one, it reminds us of the gravity of the seriousness of our relationship with God and the the way that sin messes with that. See, one of the biggest problems in the church today is that Christians treat their faith with casual and consumeristic patterns. Well, I want this, or I'm going to leave, or I don't have to participate when I don't feel like it. 
Churches have split over silly and ridiculous things. The color of the carpet, the color of the paint, the type of music they have, the different furniture. Well, I wanted chairs with higher backs than that. I'm out. We have this attitude of, of selfishness, of consumeristic, it's all about me patterns. Slogans like uh, um, uh, Burger King have ruined us. Have it your way. Great for a burger, not for eternal salvation. The biggest problem in the church, one of the biggest problems in the church, is that we treat our faith with a casual and consumeristic pattern. It shows a lack of understanding of the Word of God. And texts like this remind us of how serious biblical covenants are and how seriously they take our relationship with God. If we have a faith that is dependent upon our comfort, our preferences, our desires, or anything about us, then we don't have a faith that's focused on the right thing. Our faith has to be focused on a relationship with the Lord and making sure that that is right. Justin ben, or Dustin Bench said this, I just followed Jesus. Seems spiritual. But Jesus said regarding your following of him, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. True followers of Christ don't make it up as they go along. They are recognized for their obedience to God's word. Martin Luther says, you should not believe your conscience and your feelings more than you believe the word. Are we falling prey to this concept of consumeristic Christianity? Ask, <clears throat> we have to ask ourselves, are we taking our relationship with the Lord seriously? Because we know he does. He takes that relationship so seriously that he offered us a fix as we keep breaking it, as we keep sinning, as we keep dividing ourselves from him. But are we taking that relationship seriously? How often do you talk to the Lord in prayer? How often are you engaging him, not only with your supplications, Lord, I need this, so-and-so is sick, this is going on, but also with your adoration, also with your confession, also with your thanksgiving, also with your praises. Not only that, but how often do you strive to know and to listen to him in his word? I know better than you think how easy it is to say, I thought about spending time in the Word today, but I was in the middle of something, and I said, I'll do it as soon as I finish, and then I never did it. And that happened one day, and then two days, and then three days, and then a week, and then a month, and then a year, and the next thing I knew, it was X number of years, and I hadn't been reading the Bible at all. That shows that our heart is more oriented towards other things, maybe unintentionally, it's not like we're purposely turning our backs on the Lord, but we have to pursue our relationship with God with love and with passion. We have to talk to him in prayer. We have to know him through his word. If we don't do that, can we really call ourselves Christians? Can we really say that we want to be little Christs if we're not pursuing him? God gave us these covenants to show us how important relationship is to him. And if we say yes, and then ignore that relationship, 
The truth is we don't care about that relationship. So we have to consider the gravity of our sin and how it affects our relationship with God. But not only that, but we rejoice in the truth of the gospel. It is clear that Jesus is better. And if Jesus is better, and we are in relationship with the Lord, praising him and knowing him and praying to him, then it will be evident to people around us that we love Jesus. Is it clear to the people that you engage with, where you live, work, study, and play, that you rejoice in and are thankful for the gospel? Or would they be surprised to learn that you're a Christian? This text reminds us of the intense and glorious beauty of the covenant that Jesus has brought to us. That God has called us and given us an eternal inheritance, has redeemed us from our sins. And this text reminds us that God's relationship with us is one of seriousness, a costly one, one that costs blood, but also one of great joy. And so we should be constantly considering our relationship with the Lord and its gravity, asking ourselves, am I really a Christian? Could people really tell? Because I love the Lord and I pray and I worship and I read my Bible because I want to be in relationship with Him. And is it clear to them that I rejoice and am thankful for the gospel? It was once said of John Owen that if you pricked him anywhere, he would bleed the scriptures. I pray that that's true for us. I pray that the words that come out of our mouths, the thoughts that are in our heads, and the way that we interact with others show that we take our relationship with the Lord seriously and show that we are so thankful for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, in some ways, you give us texts like this where all we have to do is read verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions, transgressions committed under the first covenant. All we have to do is read that and we can go home because there's so many deep truths in that scripture. Father, we thank you for texts like this. We thank you for texts that remind us of the gravity of our sin and the effects it has on our relationship with you and texts that remind us that Jesus has dealt with that and that we can rejoice in that gospel. Father, we pray that as we go out from here, you would help us to be in relationship with you, taking that relationship seriously, praying to you, worshiping you, reading your word, and that everyone around us would be clear that we rejoice in the gospel. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. 
That's gpca.org.